Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for bringing us together on this Thursday evening as we are about to open again to the book of Daniel, chapter 8 specifically. We understand that there are so many different opinions about this passage, but Lord, we want to see what your word says. So may your spirit come and guide us, for we cannot interpret your word. Only your spirit can do it justice. So please be with us. Give us clear minds so that we may be able to interpret these deep things of your word. Be with those who are still coming. God is tonight. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Some of us weren't here last week, so I guess we'll go through briefly um, what we covered last time. We, for the past two weeks, I guess, we've been in chapter 8. Norm, I guess, started it, covered the first few verses, and then I took the next few verses. So what we've seen so far, we've gone through Medo-Persia, which is the ram, and then we see Greece, which is the goat, and then the first, the notable horn between the eyes, that is Alexander the Great. Alexander's horn broke off in its peak of its power, and it became four kingdoms, or four kings came out of it, which were the four commanders of, or four of the commanders in Alexander's army, and it divided to the four winds. And last week we discussed the little horn that came out, and we identified it as the power of Rome. And we mentioned that it is Rome in its completeness, meaning Rome in both of its phases, the pagan phase and the papal phase. So what we're going to do tonight, the main focus of our study tonight is to see how that is. How does this horn represent both pagan and papal Rome? And believe it or not, this concept of um, the two segments of Rome is um, perhaps the deepest of this, of this chapter. So, it may take some time. But let's go through it. Let's begin in verse 11. Can someone read verse 11 for us? It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Brought low. Okay, we're going to spend a little bit of time here. We already mentioned he magnified himself to the prince of the host. We discussed that last week. That represents papal or pagan Rome rising up and crucifying Jesus. And um, we already identified the, that aspect of it. But let's take the next section. It says, and by him, let's ask ourselves the question, by him, who's him? Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away. This hymn is talking about the little horn. Because you look in verse 12, and the host was given him against daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. This whole part is talking about the little horn. So by the little horn, the daily sacrifice was taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So the daily sacrifice, now that is, that is some might want to call it the enigma of Daniel 8, this is, this is the question mark that often 
bewilders us. What is this daily sacrifice? Now, before I go any further, I just want to read you a quick quotation from early writings. It's page 74, second paragraph. Uh, This is what Ellen White wrote. It says, Then I saw in relation to the daily, Daniel 8.12, that the word sacrifice was supplied by man's wisdom and does not belong to the text, and that the Lord gave the correct view of it to those who gave the judgment hour cry. If you look in your Bibles, I don't know if any other version does it, but the King James. If you look in the King James Version, the word sacrifice is in italics. That means all words in the King James that is italicized means that it was supplied by translators. There were words added to the text to make things flow. And sometimes, you know, most of the time, it's very helpful. But sometimes, it's based upon the previous, you know, biases or previous knowledge experience of the translator. And in this case, based on Ellen White's commentary, this word sacrifice does not need to be there. It's supplied by man's wisdom. Now, you must be wondering, well, the translators probably are intelligent people, and therefore they must have some reason why they added the word sacrifice. And there is a reason why. The word daily sacrifice, it's connected in the minds of the translators to the daily temple sacrifices. You remember, daily people came by with their sin offerings, they killed the lamb or whatever offering that they had, and they burnt on the uh, brazen altar. That was called a daily sacrifice. And that word daily, it simply means continuance in the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word just means continuance. And oftentimes that word was used in conjunction with the sacrifices. However, that word does not necessitate sanctuary service. Just because it was used oftentimes with the sanctuary service, the translators made that connection because they knew their Bible so well. They put the word sacrifice in. However, based on Ellen White, the word daily simply does not need the word sacrifice. So when we look at this text, every time you see daily sacrifice in this chapter, let's just eliminate the word sacrifice in our minds and just look at it as the daily, as it is commonly known as. Or even better yet, the daily is... The term daily is a descriptive term for the word sacrifice. It's an adverb in some cases and adjective in some cases, but it's a descriptive word. It's not a noun. So it's hard to really visualize that. But the actual definition of the word is simply continuance, continuance or ongoing, something that just continues on. It's continuance. That's simply the word. But we will have, let's look at, Let's look at it a a little bit longer, and I think it will become clearer. So, it says just this. By the little horn, the daily, or the continuance, was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Now, let's ask this question again. And the place of his sanctuary. Whose sanctuary? The little horn. That's exactly right. But most people, they think, wait a second, it, is, it must be the prince of the host. Well, this is a problem, because if you look at the whole passage, verse 11, 12, and 13, it is clear that it is the little horn that takes away the daily. 
Okay, we have that settled. So the little horn comes, magnifies himself even to the prince of the host, and by the little horn the daily was taken away, and all of a sudden the place of prince of the host sanctuary was cast down. In, in terms of looking at it systematically, he magnified himself to the prince of the host, the little horn did. The little horn took away the daily, and the little horn sanctuary was cast down. Now, we're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to this as to why this can be the little horn sanctuary. Just keep that in mind. Just keep that in mind for now. Let's go down to verse 12. We're just going to set the stage for a lot of this. But let's come back to it in a minute. Verse 12, it says, And a host was given him against a daily by reason of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Does anybody have a new King James Version? You do? Could you read that verse? Yes. Okay, what are the first three words? Because of transgression. Okay, I like that because it makes it clearer than the King James. The King James simply says, And an host was given him against the daily by reason of transgression. Or we can simply say, A host or an army, as her uh, translation renders it, same thing. An army was given to the little horn against the daily for, or we should say, because of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Now this is, this is strange. This is what's happening. First, we see the little horn. It takes away the daily because of transgression. Or, we can say this, the daily, an army was given to the daily, or, uh, excuse me, an army was given to the little horn to take away the daily, so that the transgression can come. Does that make sense? Because of transgression. In order for there to be a place for transgression, there must be a removing of the daily. And an army was given to the little horn to accomplish that. Now this is, this is tricky, because transgression and daily often is not, in, in our minds, a term of a noun. Ex- transgression is but it's not like an object, a person, a being, or some sort of thing. But it explains itself. Let's just look real quickly in verse 13, and we'll come back. Verse 13, Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily and the transgression of desolation, to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? I believe this, this verse gives us a big key to understanding what is the daily and what is the transgression. Let me read it again. Remember, sacrifice, just take that word out for now. It says, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily and the transgression of desolation? So can we say, let me read it another way. How long shall be the vision concerning the daily desolation and the transgression of desolation? Does that make sense? The continuance of desolation is the same as the daily. And the transgression of desolation is the second phase that comes after the daily. This is sort of, this is sort of hard to grasp your fingers around. But let me, let me just 
try to explain this a little bit better. Sometimes you say, we are all students of Loma Linda. I'm not, but sometimes you can say that. It says, you can say that, well, Norman's graduated. Well, anyway, we can say, Norman and Andrew are students of Loma Linda. Or you can say, Norman is a student of Loma Linda, and Andrew is a student of Loma Linda. It means the same thing. This is what this text is doing. The daily and transgression of desolation. And the word daily, remember, is continuance. It's a better term, I think, if you say continuance of desolation and transgression of desolation. Now, based upon that description, just plug this back into the previous verses. First, the continuance of, daily, uh, the continuance of desolation was taken away for the transgression of desolation. Does that make sense? Is that... Does that sort of ring a bell? Clear as mud? Okay. I knew this was going to be a little tough. But, perhaps this can be made a little bit simpler if I just simply said that the continuance of desolation and the transgression of desolation represents the two phases of Rome. It represents the two phases. The first phase is known as the daily. And the second phase is known as the transgression of desolation. Now, it'll be a lot easier once we come to understand this. In verse 13, the question is asked, how long, how long, for the, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? We'll explain this a little bit more. But the question is simply asking, the, que- the person that's asking the question, he's saying, how long will the continuance of desolation and transgression of desolation trod God's people underfoot. The question simply is, how long will this power in both phases persecute God's people? Do you see that from this verse? So therefore, that is why I say this is the two phases of Rome. Because one comes up, it must be removed in order for the other to come in its place. Now I've already, you know, this, I'm not trying to lead you around the bush. I'm just trying to show you some you reasoning behind my mind. Yeah, go ahead. What do you mean removed? Like, I see it as, like, it just changes Yeah, you are correct. We're going to talk about that. Okay. Yeah. So let's go back to verse, verse 11. And by him the daily was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So the place of his sanctuary is the little horn sanctuary, at least in the phase of what we call the daily. So now, let me ask you this question. The word continuance. That's how, how to make this simple. The word continuance it represents a continuance of desolation or continuance of persecution. At the time of Daniel, or previous to the time of Daniel, up till the time of Jesus, because it said, and magnify himself unto the prince of the host. And after that, the daily was removed. So up until the time of Jesus, what type of persecution or who... What term can you use to describe the persecutors of God's people 
up till that time? Pagan. They were pagan. See, I'm not, you know, I already told you, but I want you just to reason with me. Up until the time of Jesus Christ, even afterwards, but just up until then, every single power that has persecuted God's people has always been a pagan power. Heathen nations. It's, it's been Babylon. Before that, it was Egypt, and there was Assyria, Babylon, or the Chaldeans, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome comes. They're all pagan nations. Even if you go all the way back to after the flood, Nimrod started persecuting God's people. He was the one that was sort of the heir or the father of this pagan religion, if you want to call it that. So paganism throughout the ages has been the continual persecutor of God's people. So therefore, the continuance of desolation or the daily simply is paganism the pagan powers that persecuted God's people. Now, that makes a lot of sense now because it says the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Paganism is a religion. Therefore, they can have sanctuaries. Previous to that, it wouldn't make any sense because it was just a political power. A political power doesn't have sanctuaries. A religious power does. And this religious power or this religious political pagan power because you remember a little horn, a horn represents political power, but the daily represents paganism. So this pagan slash political power is cast down. His sanctuary is taken away. But now, let's go to verse 12. And a host was given him against the daily by reason of transgression. So a host was given to the little horn against the daily by reason of transgression. Oh, excuse me. Verse 11. We haven't finished this. I'm going back to what you mentioned now, Lorinda. It says, where am I? Okay, and the daily was taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Now, this is where it gets really sticky. You're going to need to put on your thinking caps now, okay? You really have to follow me on this. The word taken away. The word taken away. (laughs) This is, you might not believe me, but look it up in your concordance. Look it up for yourself. Don't take my word for it. But that word, the original definition of take away, it means lift. To lift. I'm not sure if it means to lift, so to say like remove type of lift, or is it to exalt or to raise type of lift. But the word, it simply has two lifts. Taken away, lift, lift. That's what I found in the concordance, the Strong's concordance, the definition of that word taken away. So we can say the daily or the continuance of desolation or paganism was lifted and the place of the sanctuary cast down. So now, this makes things really, really tricky now. Wait a second. The daily was taken away, but yet it was lifted, but yet that doesn't make any sense. But it makes perfect sense because... The next phase is called the transgression of desolation. You see, paganism was changed, like Lorinda said. Paganism was baptized to become what's known as the papacy. And this, is, this requires a lot of historical background. You, you're going to have to read a lot more on, on your own if you really want to get to the bottom of this. But let me just try to give you an overview. 
and that is just this. The daily was taken away in the sense of paganism no longer was the official religion or the official yeah, practice religion. But it was just transformed in the sense it was baptized, but now it is called Catholicism. And it is the papacy. They worship the same idols, they have the same holidays, they have the same system of beliefs, but now they just change the names of their gods. And it is now placed in a more exalted position than before. And that is called the transgression of desolation for a couple of reasons. Now, let me ask you this question. The papacy, I'm assuming you've been through this before. That's why I'm just mentioning off the top of my head like this. In the New Testament, the papacy has a special name. It has a lot of names. But one of the names is, he's called the man of what? The man of sin. And what is sin? Transgression of God's law. And transgression of desolation represents the papal phase of Rome that persecutes God's people. You remember the question is, how long will God's people be persecuted by the daily and the transgression of desolation? So first, all along, it had been pagan, 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 pagan. But all of a sudden, the daily is taken away, or it was lifted, or it was changed. Now it's called the transgression of desolation. Now what's so different about that? It's still paganism. Sure, it's still paganism. But now it is Christians persecuting Christians. Persecuting other Christians in the name of God of heaven. And that to God is sin. It's transgression. So therefore, you see the transition now from pagan political Rome to papal, which is still political Rome. All within the little horn power known as Rome. So let's try to break this down a little bit more. So he magnified himself to the prince of the host. The daily was taken away. It was lifted. The place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him against a daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And I cast down the truth to the ground and it prospered. Just one more note. Look in verse 10. This is talking about the little horn in the beginning of its power. The little horn, and it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Right there we discussed last week. We're not going to go much into this. That represented the Hebrew people and their, and their leaders. So they trampled or they cast down the political leaders of God's people. But now look in verse 12. After the daily is transitioned into the transgression of desolation, it is now casting the truth to the ground. And casting the truth to the ground, this is more of a religious type of endeavor. Before, it was just casting God's people, politically casting them to the ground. But now, it is transitioning and it is becoming more religious in the sense of uh, casting God's truth down to the ground. So we see that. And it practiced and prospered. Now, before we go to practice and prosper, I want to touch on a host. It says, An army was given to him against the daily by reason of transgression. Now, this is, perhaps we're going to a little deeper water than necessary, but since we probably won't get there in our study, I think it's good if we discuss this. Let's look in Daniel chapter 12. In chapter 12 and verse 11. 
Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. It says, And from that time that the daily shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate, or we can just say the transgression of desolation set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Verse 12, Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to a thousand three hundred five and thirty days. We're not going to discuss the actual prophecy. This is a time prophecy. You can see it's another time prophecy. 1,290 years and then 1335. But just to say, as we've discussed in the past, in order for their, a time prophecy to make any sense, there must be a beginning date. Remember 1260? And then we're going to come to 2300 days. All of these things, it requires a beginning date. Based on chapter 12, verse 11 of Daniel, it tells us the date that we need to begin counting 1290 and 1335 from. And that date is the removing of the daily for the setting up of transgression and desolation. So you must be wondering, you might be wondering, what's the big deal? We, you know, we, maybe you do, just agree. Yeah, I believe you. You know, fine, let's move on. But this is really critical. Because when we come to chapter 12, when you come to chapter 12 on your own, we're gonna, you're going to see that this prophecy requires a beginning date. And unless we can clearly identify what is this daily business, what is this transgression of desolation, if we don't understand the transition of that, that time of translation, we won't understand the timing of this prophecy. So, what is the date? If I give you the beginning date, you should be able to figure out the ending date, right? So, and the key comes from this term, an army, or a host was given to the little horn. This is just going to be a short history lesson. I recommend you read it directly for yourself. You can look it up in your history book. I believe I actually learned about this in high school, history, world history. But also, I recommend this book highly um, by Uriah Smith called Daniel Revelation. It has this all in there. Let me try to explain this as much as possible. The little horn power, known as Rome, in its pagan phase, was broken into ten different divisions. By this time in the book of Daniel, you should have already learned that. In Daniel chapter 7, the horn, or, or the beast with ten horns. There are ten nations now, all pagan nations. And this power, known as Rome, in ten different barbaric tribes, within them arose a king known as Clovis. His name is Clovis, and he was the king, a pagan king, of the Frank tribe. And he married a wife who was Roman Catholic. And he himself was a pagan. And one day he was battling and his, his fortunes were turning against him. And he realized, wait, I'm going to lose. So he cried out and he made an oath. You know, not the best way to get converted, but what he said was, if the, if the God of my wife helps me win this battle, I will become a Catholic. And lo and behold, he wins the battle. So he marches his people through a river, baptizes them, and ho, oh, look, they're all Catholics now. They're all Christians. So now he became the first Catholic king of any of the other tribes, the ten tribes. And he was, believe it or not, the most powerful. And according to historians, based on my reading from Daniel Revelation by Uriah Smith, his conversion to 
Catholicism placed a check on all of the other Aryan nations, all of the other pagan nations and Aryan nations. So this king was known as the the one king that was standing on the side of the up and rising papacy. By this time, at this time, the papal power was not a great power that we think of during the Middle Ages. But what it said was, based on this historian that I read, it says that at his birth, when he was born, Clovis, he was born into the Roman civilization. But when he died, it was the beginning of the Middle Ages. So he himself, he is known in history as the cog that turned the course of history. He is the man that transitioned pagan Rome into papal Rome. Now how did he do this? He started, he started fighting his uh, nations around him. He was the king of the Franks, which you know is in the general vicinity of France now. And he went and he fought the Visigoths, who was against the pap- papacy. They were pagan nation. And he came around and he defeated them. And this is about the year 507. And when at that defeat, the Eastern Roman Empire at this time, who was ruled in Constantinople, which is Byzantium, I think is known at that time, the Eastern Roman Empire saw him as he is the man to go to to preserve the Western front of the Roman nation. So the Eastern Empire bestowed upon him a special title. And it said, it, the title is called an obsolete title because it didn't really mean anything, but it was just to make sure that he remains on their side. That title is called the Protector of Rome. And from that day forward, which at that time was 508, AD 508, at that time this, this pagan turned Catholic king, Clovis, became known as the Defender of of the papal power. At that time, everything started transitioning. The historian says that with that transition in 508, all opposition to the papacy basically was ended. Before it was all the, all the different powers, they were just trying to sack Rome. All the ten barbaric tribes, they were just trying to sack Rome so that they can become in power of the Roman Empire. But after Clovis came in 508, the transition came. All the people now, they no longer wanted to overcome or sack Rome. They were trying to become a part of Rome now, in the sense of the papal power. So the opposition of papal development stopped. And in a sense, to put it perhaps in the most concise way, at that time, at 508, because of Clovis, he united pagan and Christian. He united barbaric tribes and the remaining, the remainder of Roman civilization together, but he united them all under the banner of the papacy. So at 508, remember that date, the daily was taken away for the transgression of desolation to come. It doesn't say that it was set up at the same time. It says it was removed for the setting up of the transgression. Yeah? No, that was not bef- when he became king. 508 was when he received the title, Protector of Rome. And 508 was when they marked the transition. All the opposition stopped. That was, when, that was right after he defeated the Visigoths. And after he defeated the Visigoths, that was when 
all the other barbaric tribes realized, wait a second, we're going to stop. Not be not because of that. It was because Favoy was actually it was actually a transition date in history in terms of the nations actually stopped fighting. Not, I wouldn't say stop fighting, but they actually s- stopped the opposition to the papal power. That's the date settled by historians. Because well, let me just say this: Clovis was baptized in year 476, I believe. And why not that date? Because because that wasn't the date that transitioned from the mindset of the people from sacking Rome to helping it develop. That happened after he beat the Vesgoths in 508. And also, remember, it says, and a host was given to him. That host was given at 508, in a sense. Okay? Good question. I mean, I don't claim to have all the answers, but really... What's that? Primarily. Well, that's not primary. Secondarily. Primarily, it's Clovis. Clovis, in 508, he's officially now fighting for the papacy. Before, he was just fighting because he was a Catholic. But now he's actually in the position of, I need to defend the papal power. Yeah, and host was given to him. So, 1290, 1335, the beginning date now, you have it, 508. So, you can go home and do, your, do the math. All right. Let's continue. And a host was given him against the daily by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Now this is very this is very interesting. It practiced and it prospered. Now, in the mind of Daniel, who's hearing all this, what he's hearing is that whoa, this power is just growing and growing and growing. It's coming down. It it reaches the the pleasant land. It throws down the host and tramples the stars under its feet. You know, it magnifies himself even against the prince of the host. And it continues this persecution all the way down through this entire vision that he's hearing at the very end, the last two words, instead of saying, and he fell, or and the Lord came in brightness of his glory. Instead of something like that, he hears, and it practiced and prospered. That's bad news. So in the mind of Daniel, this power is just growing and growing and growing and growing and growing in power. But then the next verse comes. Verse 13. Then I heard one saint speaking and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake. Now that's a mouthful. But simply put, in his vision he sees two people. Angels, let's just call them. That's probably what they were. Two angels and one of the angels went to the other angel to ask the question, how long? Now this is just a key when you study the Bible especially Daniel Revelation. Angels, they don't ask dumb questions. (laughs) Most of the time when angels ask a question, they ask the question that we should be asking. And they're just so afraid that human beings are so dumb that they won't ask the right question. So in, in in simple terms, angels ask a question in order to emphasize that you really have to know this. They ask the question that should be asked. And, and a lot of times, just as a side note, angels ask questions not because they don't know the answer. A lot of times they ask the question so that they can give you the answer. 
And that's exactly what's happening here. Verse 13, it says, Then I heard one saint speaking and another saying, Okay. The question is asked, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily and the transgression of sacrifice, uh, transgression of desolation, to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? Now the question I, I'm pretty sure might be floating in your mind now is, what sanctuary? You remember before we mentioned that this is the sanctuary of the little horn. But now how do we know whose sanctuary this is, trodden underfoot? That's the only sanctuary that was mentioned being trodden underfoot. But now let's just look at it. In the Hebrew, in verse 11, the word sanctuary, the Hebrew word is Mikdash. It's spelled M-I-Q-D-A-S-H. Mikdash. And that word, throughout the Old Testament, it is used in connection with any sanctuary. It can be applied to God's sanctuary. It can be applied to pagan sanctuaries. It can be applied to any sanctuary. It's just the word sanctuary. But then that word sanctuary in verse 13. In Hebrew, the word is Kodesh. Q-O-D-E-S-H. And that word Kodesh in the Old Testament is only used for God's sanctuary. It is only used for God's sanctuary. So you see, there's a differentiation. The first sanctuary is called Migdash. It could be any sanctuary. Sure, it could be God's sanctuary. I'm not saying that's totally out of the question. But based on my reading and my study and what I believe the Bible says is that that sanctuary is the little horns, pagan sanctuaries. But in verse 13, without a doubt, this is God's sanctuary. And now the question is asked, how long will the sanctuary and the host be trodden underfoot? And it mentions specifically how long the daily and transgression of desolation to trod God's people underfoot. And this is one of the reasons why I believe this angel had to ask the question. He had to ask the right question to get the right answer for Daniel. Daniel is probably, because Daniel didn't see past his day. He couldn't see all the way down in the future. He, didn't, he wasn't there when Jesus died, you see. So this man, Daniel, he probably would have asked something like, but how long will this power last? And that's not good enough. You see, the question is asked, how long for the daily and the transgression of desolation to trod God's people underfoot? is very specific. How long? Rome, or I should say, paganism, and the papacy to trod God's people underfoot. And the reason for that is that in Daniel's mind, he is only thinking when his people are restored. Because you remember, he's in a time of captivity. So he's not thinking of way down in the future, however many captivities later. He's thinking in his then and now. You know, he's human being. But the angel asked the question, how long will this pagan and papal power persist in persecuting God's people until the end of time? You see, the, the, the type of questions that's asked is very, very different. It's not just asking, when will this power cease? It's asking, when will persecution, both pagan and in the name of Christianity, cease for God's people all the way until the end of time? That's why this angel is asking the question. It's not really a part of Daniel's thinking. And so, the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. Now the host we've mentioned before, it's simply God's people. But the sanctuary, the sanctuary 
was trodden underfoot before, during the time of Daniel. That made perfect sense to him. The temple of Jerusalem was in ruins. It wasn't rebuilt. He understood that. But how did the papal power trod God's temple underfoot? How did it trod the sanctuary underfoot? Now, we don't have a lot of time to discuss this, but let me just plant this bug in your ear. The whole book of Hebrews in the New Testament is talking about how the heavenly sanctuary is better than the earthly sanctuary. How Moses' sanctuary is no match for the sanctuary where you know, Christ, who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, is ministering now. But the book of Hebrews was written to the Jewish people because they were still obeying, or they were still under the Mosaic sanctuary. So they were actually casting away the truth of the sanctuary by continuing, persisting in the earthly sanctuary services. And now, the papal power is described by J. A. Wiley as Greek philosophy, I forgot, Roman political power, something along those lines, and Jewish ritualism. That's the combination. Jewish ritualism led into being brought into Christianity and then being blossomed into full-out Catholicism. And so as the papacy persisted in earthly sanctuary services, meaning going to a confessional, confessing your sins before an earthly priest instead of to the heavenly priest, having to pay penance, you know, things like doing this type of earthly sacrifices where it's no longer, actually that's never necessary, that type of penance was never necessary, but just persisting in earthly sanctuary services while denying the heavenly services is troddening God's sanctuary, His truth, underfoot. So that is how the papal power is still trodden God's sanctuary underfoot. So, this has been a tough lesson today, but let's conclude in verse 14. Verse 14, And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now hang on just a second. The question, the question that's asked was, How long shall the sanctuary and the host be trodden underfoot? And the saint turns around to Daniel and says, Unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now that doesn't make much sense. Now hopefully we can make more sense of it, out of it. The 2,300 days was given in answer to this question, but it wasn't an answer to the question. It answered the question, but it gave more than what the question asked. The question was asking, How long will they be trodden underfoot? A time period is given, but it doesn't say under 2,300 days, then the sanctuary and his host shall no longer be trodden underfoot. It simply says the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now let me explain real briefly what this means. The sanctuary shall be cleansed. That term, common throughout Jewish lingo, is talking about the Day of Atonement. All the sins being brought in daily into the sanctuary once a year is cleansed. The sanctuary being cleansed clearly in the mind of Daniel must mean the Day of Atonement. And in order for there to be a Day of Atonement, 
that means there must be a sanctuary rebuilt, a sanctuary in service. That also means there must be a people reinstated. The Day of Atonement was only for God's people. It wasn't for the pagan nations. And it was only for the living. It was only for the living people. So Daniel in his mind, when he said cleansing of the sanctuary, immediately he must have thought, that means the sanctuary will be rebuilt, and that means God's people will be reunited and reinstated as His holy people. So automatically in his mind, when he says the sanctuary be cleansed, it automatically means God's people will be restored. The sanctuary no longer trod underfoot, the host no longer trod underfoot. So in his mind, oh, it will be restored. But the key is just this. It says 2300 days. And the word days, if you look in your margin, it says evening, morning. Evening, morning. It's not the, tip, it's not the normal yom, the Hebrew yom, which means day. It's a word that means evening, morning. And now a lot of people, they, they say evening, morning, it is used in connection with the sanctuary sacrifices. And it's true, it is. That word is. Evening and morning sacrifices. So therefore, a lot of people, they divide the 2300 days in half and they say it's only half that time and they're little days because you can't apply the year day-to-year principle because it's not the same word. But I like to go back to the very first usage of the word. First usage of this word, evening, morning. Actually, let me just ask you, when is the first time that term is used? Evening, morning. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And Moses, I believe, did that on purpose. He used that word evening, morning to force us to count. Evening, morning was the first day. Evening, morning was the second day. It doesn't say evening, morning, it was one day, or two days, or three days. It says first, second, third, fourth. So when it says 2300 evening, morning, it doesn't just mean 2300 days in the sense of just any 2300 it means the 2300th day or the 2300th day of atonement. And Daniel knew in his mind, day of atonement come only once a year. So 2300th day of atonement, that's 2300 years. So Daniel in his mind, he's thinking, unto 2300 years, then there shall be another day of atonement. So in his mind, can you imagine what Daniel's going through? He's thinking, another 2,300 days before God's people will be fully restored, the temple rebuilt, his people reunited. That's not good news. So Daniel in his mind, the cog wheels are turning. He's trying to make sense of all this. What? This power, this little horn power is going to rise, persecute God's people for another 2,300 years? What's going to happen? And the verse 16, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So in Daniel chapter 8, the vision goes from verse 1 to verse 16. I think before I said it went to verse 14. The vision actually goes to verse... Yeah, actually to verse 17. That's the vision portion. And verse 17, then comes the explanation of the vision. And we already went through down near the bottom, king of fierce countenance, all of that. But the very, very end, it says, verse 26, and the vision of the evening and the morning, so we know what vision that is now, 2300 days, which was told is true. 
Wherefore shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. So Daniel, he's thinking, this vision is true. What does this mean? He's thinking, wait a second, I can't make any sense out of this. This vision is 2300 days? Wait, wait, wait. But then God says, seal up the vision. It's going to be for a long time. For it shall be for many days. So no doubt. So that's, it makes perfect sense now. Verse 27, that's why Daniel fainted. He fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision and understood it. So I just want you to get a glimpse of what Daniel is going through, because this is the critical key to understand, <clears throat> to understand chapter 9. Daniel, at the end of the vision, he's, he just witnessed the ram, the goat, little horn, in two phases, just totally demolishing God's people in his temple. And at the very end, God says, it won't be another 2,300 days before your people will be restored. And then God just sort of, be quiet, zipped, told him, shut up the vision. It's not going to be for a long time. So, can you imagine? Daniel just fainted. I mean, he was so distraught at the vision that he just passed out. And this is, this is the stage that is set for chapter 9. Because now you see in chapter 9, Daniel has a lot of questions that need to be answered. His question is, why, Lord? What's going on? What's going to happen to God's people? 2,300 years. That's a long time. So he's thinking in his mind all of these questions. And he's thinking, what do we do? What did, what did we do as a people that caused you to cause this delay in, in restoring your people? So this is the stage that has been set for Daniel chapter 9. But in closing, let's just, let me just make a few notes. Daniel 7 and 8, you remember in the beginning of chapter 8, it says, And I saw another vision which appeared unto me after the first. After that which appeared to me at the first. That's verse 1. Already we see is a, a linkage. Daniel is, is already linking chapter 8, chapter 7. And in chapter 7, the date, the actual time prophecy given for the fall of political Rome in, this, in, the, uh, in the person of the little horn power or the papacy, the political fall was given in chapter 7, 1798. Time, times, half times, dividing of times. And in, verse, in chapter 8, we already mentioned that chapter 8 was primarily dealing with the religious aspect that dealt with God's people. And since God already told us, He already gave us without a shadow of a doubt the time of the fall of political papacy. The religious fall of the papacy was given in chapter 8. The cleansing of the sanctuary when put in, when put in combination with chapter 7, it simply must be the judgment hour that we saw from chapter, verse 9 and onwards. And more specifically, in the context of chapter 8, it's more dealing with the religious end, or the end of the religious power of this papal power. It is the mark of that, the beginning of their end. So the re repetition in chapter 7 and chapter 8 is apparent. It's a re repetition. But it is an enlargement, giving us better clarity as to what will happen at the end. In chapter 8, it's very interesting. It begins with, 
it begins with the ram. Now, it's really strange why God would do that. Because in chapter 7, it was still in the reign of Belshazzar. Chapter 7 and chapter 8 were both in the reign of Belshazzar. But in chapter 7, it began with the line with eagle's wings. It began with Belshazzar, or kingdom of Babylon. But in chapter 8, it begins with the ram, Medo-Persia. It doesn't even touch Babylon. And that is to give us a hint about the beginning date of the little horn power. Or, excuse me, not the little horn, the cleansing of the sanctuary. God doesn't want us to overshoot too far into the past. He wants to give us a boundary. In chapter 8, let's begin with the ram and the cleansing of the sanctuary, the beginning date, for those of you who already have studied it, it begins in the reign of Medo-Persia. And so that's just a little foretaste of what's going to come in chapter 9. But all these things, God is trying to give us the proper boundaries so that we can properly identify and to find out when this cleansing of the sanctuary begins. And in following weeks, we'll be discussing this much more. But I think we've covered enough for one day. So, if there are any questions or discussions, comments, feel free afterwards. I think um, I'm a little over. So why don't we kneel together for prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you again for giving us this time to study together. Lord, as we have looked at some heavy things, heavy topics in Daniel chapter 8, I pray that you will give us clarity as we continue to study deeper, to search and to dig even deeper into the veins of truth found in your word. Please send your spirit, give us eager and diligent minds so that we can continue to study on our own and to find out the truth of these things. Teach us, Lord, to continue to press forward and never be satisfied with where we are right now, that we may learn more and yet more until the day you come. Please protect us now as we go our separate ways. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.